Customarily, we begin with a video, so Patrick, go for it whenever you're ready. We'll show a video before we begin. So, I'm going to introduce you to my good friend, Uzman. Now, Uzman is a master at extracting information from the unwilling through psychoactive means. Oh, is that truth serum? There's no such thing as truth serum. That's just nonsense from TV. Well, what is it then? It's a little concoction that he's been perfecting since his days with the SIS. It makes you suggestible and highly responsive. Well, dude, that's truth serum. No, it's not. No fencing, but they sound like truth serum to me. Right? It's not a truth serum. Oh, okay. Hey, I believe you. It's not a truth serum. If it walk like duck and talk like ducks, the truth serum. Well, I have a lot of allergies, so you might want to think about that. You know what? You're right. This isn't truth serum, because I don't feel anything. That was a lie. I did feel something. This is truth serum. There's no such thing. OK. OK, OK. Now, I'm going to make this real easy for you, Luis. OK. Where is Scott Lang? Well, see, that's complicated. Because when I first met Scotty, he was in a bad place. And I'm not talking about cell block D. His wife had just filed for divorce. And I was like, damn, homie, she dumped it when you're on lockup. And he was like, yeah, I know. I thought I was going to be with her forever. But now I'm all alone. And I was like, damn, homie, you know what? You got to chin up because you'll find a new partner. But you know what? I'm Luis. And he says, you know what? I'm Scotty. And we're going to be best friends. OK, hold on, hold on. I like a good story as much as the next person. But what in the hell does this have to do with where Scott Lang is? I'm getting there. I'm getting there. You put a dime in him, you got to let the whole song play out. He's like human jukebox. Oh, my abuelita had a jukebox in the restaurant. Yeah, only played Morrissey. And if anybody ever complained, she'd be like, oh, no te gusta más? You know, Chicanos, we call them más. Then adios. Uh, what can I say? You know, we relate to his melancholy ballads, you know? Lang. Right, 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 right. So anyway, this guy gets out of jail and he starts working for Hank. That's when he met Hope. And Hope's all like, I want nothing to do with you. Look at my hair, dude. I'm all business. And then Scotty's like, you know what, girl? My heart is all broken and I'll probably never find love again. But damn if I want to kiss you. But then you fast forward and they're all like into each other, right? And then Scotty's like, you know what? I can't tell you this, but I'm going to go trash in the airport with Captain America. And then she said, I can't believe you split like that. Smell you later, dummy. So Scotty goes on house arrest and he won't admit it. But his heart is all like, damn, I thought Hope could have been my new true partner, but I blew it. But fate brought him back together and then Hope's heart is all I'm worried that I can't trust him and he's gonna screw up again and ruin everything and then my heart is all like that fancy raspberry filling represents a company's red and we're days away from going out of business oh out of business days away damn truth sir and you know I, I was trying to protect you guys I swear to God you know I was trying to be a good boss but we're broke and the carpenters are last hope and if we don't show up we're done that's terrible bossing damn bro that's on me that's on me hey enough I'm gonna ask you one more time where is Scott Lang? I've been trying to tell you. He's in a tricky spot, emotionally speaking. Emotionally speaking? Well, where is Scott Lang? Literally speaking! Oh, the woods. The woods? <laughs> what do you mean, the woods? The Muir Woods, the second fire road off the Panoramic Highway. So why did I show that video? It's, a, it's all about truth serum, and... Um, this, uh, this scene is uh, taken from Ant-Man and the Wasp. That's the second one. And uh, it's kind of funny because I was going to show you something in the 
Justice League side, but then Henry goes, no, 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 we're a church of the MCU universe. <laughs> so, so we can't show DC universe stuff here. Anyway, but uh, why did I say that was, because like, there are times when um, a verse that rings a bell in our minds uh, uh, as we read the scripture and in our Christian lives is that there's this uh, phrase, the truth will set you free, right? Remember that verse? Uh, some of us has uh, memorized it in our lifetime. And so, but what keeps us from actually getting into the truth, to the truth of ourselves? And maybe sometimes we need this truth serum, right? Uh, however, we're, we're not going to inject ourselves with truth serum today. So we're going to try to identify other things that how to break out and uh, establish that freedom in Christ that we all preach about. How do we get truly true to ourselves, to find the true us, aside from truth serum, <laughs> all right? So before we begin, we are now beginning on a series called Soul Care. And uh, some of you, some of your groups, uh, two groups actually, uh, are going in through the video series of Soul Care. And uh, some of us have the book and we're reading it uh, uh, for chapter by chapter. So our new sermon series uh, uh, beginning now is on the reflections of Soul Care. So Pastor Fritz and I, what we'll be doing is that we will be providing our own reflections of each chapter of Soul Care. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, while you, your groups, and, or yourself as individuals, would be listening or watching the video series or reading the book along with us. But why Soul Care? Why are we doing this, uh, um, uh, this topic? Well, we just went through a tough slot through Deuteronomy. And I find that uh, sometimes in our Christian lives, we are more bombarded with more Bible study, a lot of Bible study. We read a lot of Bible. We take it all in, in here. Yet there's this distance between here and here that it, sometimes it gets disconnected. And maybe it's biological. The mind is, <laughs> and the heart, it has this distance. But uh, you wonder how come I don't know about you, but um, when I speak with people, and sometimes I do my own reflections, how come all that Bible study is not transformational for myself? How come my life does not seem different after a study? After this whole tough slaughter through Deuteronomy, or even in your individual small groups, uh, like you probably studied some of the books, like First Thessalonians, I remember. I dropped by to a small group, uh, another, another book in the Bible. How come I don't sense transformation? Like, how come I don't see my life from point A to point B, and then after the study, how come point A and point B look so similar? Where's my transformation? Where's my revitalization, maybe? Where's my rejuvenation? Where's the whole act of reincarnation, so to speak? And so that is why I would like to, through my prayer for you, and through the prayer, through the prayer meeting, and what you, some of you have shared during the prayer meeting, God spoke to me and said, you know what? It is time probably to actually look at our souls, to examine our souls. Take a pause from our Bible study. Take the principles of everything that we learn in our studies, in Bible studies, in Deuteronomy, but actually try to figure out why we're not taking it into heart. And why is it that every single thing that we learn does not seem to transform us? We don't seem to be different. That's soul care. That's why we're doing soul care. Like we could be doing another Bible study, we could be going through another chapter, another book, but I feel that it is time, maybe we just take a break and say, hold up, let's let the, all the data dump soak in, and then maybe it's time for us to figure out why 
I am not transformed yet. So let's go on. So here's the, uh, so Soul Care is a book dedicated and devoted to provide us with seven principles of healing and rejuvenation of our souls so that we can find God, so that we can have access to God's open hands, we can hear God's heart better, and to know his thoughts, to be able to feel his presence, power, energy, so that we can, yeah, love. We can find joy, find peace, and all the fruits of the spirit that he promised to give us. To go beyond merely addressing behaviors. Because I find that sometimes as well, for me, as I was growing up as a Christian, a lot of times I focus too much on my behaviors. Oh, I'm impatient. Confess. Pray about it. Oh, I don't have enough time. So what do I do? I pray about time management. Confess. Move on. Oh, I'm addicted to something. Confess. <laughs> you see what I'm getting at? However, all those things are just mere symptoms, isn't it? Symptoms of a deeper root problem. A very deep issue. And it, and it could be various issues, but that's the very foundation that is actually on shaky. It's very shaky. The reason why we have all these symptoms is because of a very shaky, fragile foundation. And so going through the seven principles helps us to find that rejuvenation, help us to rebuild that foundation. And so what are they? What are those seven principles? But so it, the seven principles listed in the book would be identity. Who are we? Another one is repentance. What are the deep sins that we still have left unconfessed? Or there are sins that we keep confessing, but for some other reason, we don't trust God that he actually forgave. And then family sin patterns, forgiving others, healing hurts, overcoming fears, and breaking demonic strongholds. Because here's the quote from the book about, the, about, the, about why we cannot just only focus on behaviors. Rob Reimer says this, God is far less concerned about our behavior than we think he is. He is much more concerned about our hearts than we'll ever know. God knows if we get our hearts healthy and rightly aligned with him, our behaviors will follow. But if we get our behaviors in line without dealing with the condition of our hearts, we will become Pharisees at best. We will be left with dark places in the soul and a life full of judgment, not love. And I feel that there are times as I was growing up, and even till now, that as I always focus on, as my, even my church and my personal uh, small groups focus too much on behaviors, we tend to actually be judgmental to others, but worse yet, we become judgmental to ourselves. So much so that we just, uh, we just focus on our behaviors and just totally forget about the truth that actually sets us free from those behaviors. So let's first define what a soul is. And here's a quote from Rod Reimer. Your soul can have hurts and bitterness. Your soul can still have sin and demonic strongholds. Your soul can have fears and faulty beliefs about who you are. Your soul can still feel condemnation and shame. Your soul is where your mind, your will, and your emotions still hold sway over the reality of your daily existence. Your soul is basically you. I don't know if you ever watched Transformers. But um, another uh, a loose analogy is probably that, that spark, that the conscience, the deeper inning, that, that, the one that makes who you are you. So your soul can have hurts. Your soul can, it's that. It's just you. So why is it important to have a fir firm grasp of your identity then? This is our first uh, chapter. We're going into identity. Why is it so important 
to know who you are. Why is it the why is it the first chapter of this book and why is it the first like first part in soul care is to know your identity because knowing who you are will shape where you're headed, as your destiny and how you live. Knowing who you are is like a foundation of your life that will determine whether your life will be be, be able to stand up against trials. Burdens, hardships, suffering, and all sorts of tribulations. Knowing your identity and getting your identity right will enable you to have a healthy soul. In fact, I do believe in that. The author says here: if you are going to construct a healthy life, it begins with what you believe about yourself. In fact, I believe that if you are going to construct anything healthy in your life—physical, mental, spiritual—it all actually begins. With a view of yourself, and how you see yourself, and who you are. So, what is this healthy view? Because if it was up to our individual selves, we would be trying to grasp at anything that seems reasonable, right? And try to imitate it, right? We would try to measure up to something, and that's unfortunate because we all have tried that, and we all try it, and it's always just based on our own efforts, isn't it? We always try to try so hard to match up to somebody or something or some standard. So that we could attach our identity to, we see that in social media now. We see that in marketing. Sorry, Brian, he's not here. But we see that in marketing. Everybody's trying to dictate who we are or who we should be, right? And then, so is that right? No, because that's not freedom at all. Because what happens if you cannot attain to that standard that your parents told you about, or your friends, or the social media, or whatever, or the society is telling you? What happens if it's a tough slot? Oh, they're here. A tough slot. Right, like it's still based on our efforts. So, our identity, therefore, for this morning, is not founded upon what we do, what we've accomplished, or how well we match up to others. Actually, to、uh, this is our point for this morning. Our identity is actually found in Christ, according to Ephesians. And here's the quote that I want to just unpack this morning. And this is our thesis this morning. If you only understand who you are in Christ. If you only believe what God believes about you, it would revolutionize the way you live. And that actually, that's our thesis for the whole entire series. It's this: if you only understood who you are in Christ, if you only believe what God believes about you, it would revolutionize the way you live. And I think this morning we all need some revolutionizing in our lives right now, based on also during our prayer meetings. One of the prevalent、um, words that came out of the prayer meeting was reestablishing our joy, getting our joy back in Christ. Well, that's the statement that we're going to try to unpack throughout this series. So, who are you in Christ? Well, you need to believe that you are loved by God first and foremost. He loves you so much, not because of who you are or what you do, what you can or cannot do. But because of who he is and what he has done, which makes God's love and our foundation unshakable, since it doesn't depend on whether we screw up or not. Isn't that great? It doesn't matter whether we screw up or not. We are loved by God. It's not dependent on our on what we do. We are so loved by God that He created us in His own image and redeemed us by His Savior, who counted us as worthy of His very life. He died for us because he believed that we were worth dying for, and that's the truth that we have to hold. We, you, and I are worth dying for. He said that. 
He made you because he believed that you were worth being made as well. You're never an accident. You're not an accident. Um, the author gave an example of, um, of his science teacher, but gave an example of you know, how the, uh, his science teacher believed in evolution. And, and then uh, he greets his students as, welcome cosmic accidents, right? How do you feel if you, your teacher kept on every day saying, good morning, cosmic accident, right? It, though you may find it amusing, this, this, these statements start to get ingrained in our heads. And it goes deep, deep, deep down into our hearts saying that, yeah, maybe I am just a fluke or an accident. No. We believe in Christ that we were made with a purpose. We were made in God's image. We were made to have community with God. And so believe that. You are not an accident, regardless of your history, regardless of whether, oh, like because of my parents' bad decisions. No, you're not an accident. Do you believe these truths? Because if you do, though, how come, because we say these a lot, how come we still have this gap between knowing and really holding it in our hearts? How come we're not even unchanged because of these truths then? If, we are, if God said, I died for you because you were worth it, I made you because you were worth it, how come it just doesn't seem to connect into our hearts? How come, again, when we say these truths, how come point A and point B still look the same? Why are we still anxious about stuff? Always busy, praying about stuff that we want God to do. Always complaining about being too busy, or some of us like, like the business, but we complain about how, why God does not honor our busyness or giving us better time management. Why are we passionless, lack of energy, or still in need of control, have a habit of being the savior for everyone, want to please for everyone? Why do we have those things? Why are we so eager and anxious and just, yeah. Because I still remember I overhear some of the prayer, prayer items. It's like time management. I'm like, okay, right? Like, okay, you're busy, but why? Or, like, uh, or anxious about pleasing people. Why? Shouldn't you be just finding, shouldn't we find our worth in God and God already told us that we are worth it? Where's that gap? What's going on? Why have you not transformed because of these truths? Where's that revolutionary life that removes all this and dispels all this anxiety? Well, it's because our minds are preventing those truths from taking root into our hearts. There's something here that every time we take in these truths, our minds are blocking it from getting down to here, into our hearts. Something won't let the truth set us free. Our minds won't let go to something in our old selves. Why is that? And so this morning, here are my reflections as I read the remainder of the chapter. And it all has to do with the opposite of truth. And what is the opposite of truth? Lies. There are deep lies that we were brought up, or we were told, or we gave power to. Because if we agree to something, we actually give power to it, agree? Right? So if we agree to a lie, we actually give power to the lie. We give authority to the lie to convince us that we are. We give power to lies when we agree with them. The more we give these lies power to become our identity, the more those lies are our identity. So how do we know if our identity are filled with lies? Well, like most illnesses, 
we looked at the symptoms. And these are some of the symptoms that was given as an example in the book. And then, so what is the first symptom? First one is defensiveness. Do you find yourself defensive? Do I find myself defensive? Of course. Whenever Rosanna tells me that I have a C grade talk up here and say, oh man, like you didn't do too well, well what's the first thing that comes out of my mouth? You didn't listen well. <laughs> right? You, you fell asleep. Now that's why. <laughs> or something like that, right? I get defensive. Why is that? Why is it that I get defensive? Why is it that we get defensive when we get criticized from people? Or when people tell us something? Or when people differ in their opinions with us? Well, we are defensive because there's something deeper, a lie that, that, that's deeper. We believe in a lie. There's a lie that we believe in. That's why we become very defensive. And we're going to go into that. But first, this first symptom is defensiveness. Do we find ourselves defensive? Second symptom is pettiness. What bothers us? You know what bothers me? Late people. <laughs> Tardiness, right? That really ticks me off. I, I sort of remember when I was managing a, a Best Buy store. And then, uh, actually Staples, not Best Buy, but Staples store. And then when uh, and an employee came in late, even just two minutes late or three minutes late, I would write her up. And uh, three strikes you're out, right? So you could tell how many firings I had, <laughs> right? So, you know, because it just irritates me. Why does it irritate me? And I have to question myself on that. Why does tardiness, messiness irritate me? It's because of a deep lie that I have. There's a lie that is really rooted in my heart that I have not addressed. And what is that lie? We'll go into that. Next symptom. <laughs> is compulsive behavior. Do some of us find we need to do something often to fill a need that we believe is crucial to our survival? We grab and clutch to the things we feel are lacking in our souls, things that we believe will help us overcome feeling less than or inadequate. We fill our deprivations, right, with our compulsive activity, like busyness, food, money, work. Well, looks, <laughs> well let's look at mine, compulsiveness, which is busyness. When I look at myself, I was like that, right? I, I was compulsive in keeping busy. Why? Because I guess I was brought up that way. I, I don't like to be in an idle position, right? I, I felt that my whole identity was about busyness. I'm not useful, right? It's all about usefulness. And interestingly, I thought, you know what, maybe a change of scenery would do, you know, like change my behavior, address it. And this is why addressing behaviors is not the solution. I go on vacation. Right? I go on to, to a trip, uh, like either in Mexico or something, and try to relax and unwind. But did it work? No, <laughs> because when I come back, what do I do? I'm busy again. Right? I try to get busy again. I try to like, make myself useful again. So change of scenery and trying to address the behavior doesn't really work. Right? So there's this lie, again, another lie that, that is deeply rooted in my heart. Something that makes me feel that if I'm not busy, if I'm not useful, I'm unworthy. Get it? There's a lie that is trying to influence, tell me that I'm, if I'm not busy or useful, I'm unworthy, unlovable, or inadequate. So then, that, hence, that's why as I reflect, maybe that's what's making me, wanting me not to be idle. And uh, I personally am always wrestling with that because I just feel that, am I useful? Is God, does God love me when I'm t completely idle? So what are those lies? 
that these symptoms are kind of percolating in uh, addressing? Well, the first uh, lie is called the performance lie. This one is particularly relevant, again, for me in my life. Um, how many of you were brought up with this slogan, behave well, serve well, and live well? Anybody? Or one of those versions? Behave well, serve well, and live well. So the more we do it, the more we feel more adequate and useful and maybe relevant. Well, <laughs> I was brought up in, uh, in this performance line. I realized that, man, a lot of my that stuff that I did really actually nurtured this lie. One of them being, uh, I was just made known this two weeks ago, uh, a friend of mine took a picture of a plaque in the piano school that I used to attend way back. It was like 20 something odd years ago, or even more, 30 years ago now. And uh, she took a picture of the plaque, and it was like a, in our piano school. And then it says, you know, graduates of ARCT diplomas, and then, uh, you know, all these graduates here. And then I'm like going, wow, I know every single person because I competed on it. To, I competed with everyone. In our piano school, we were, it was a competitive environment. Everybody needed to compete. Everybody went to countless competitions. And I went to countless competitions. And the, the score that we always had to get was honors or honors with distinction. Okay, that's the score that we needed to get. Like, think about that. I was growing up starting age four, all the way to uh, first year university, I was brought up that way, that life is a competition. Life is all about performance. Life is about getting, hitting the 90 to 100% distinction with honors. If not, you're nothing. Man, and then so when she took that picture, it brought back those memories. I'm like, maybe that, wow, I never knew that that lie of performance was really deeply ingrained in my psyche and in my soul, and I needed to address that. Second, what's the second line? The second line is called the people-pleasing line. You know that quote uh, I sometimes say to myself, I don't care what people think. Sure, I don't. I'm really lying to myself. I do care about what people think. Like, that, we do care about how people think of us, and we do care whether people like us or not. It's in our nature because we are social animals, right? We need to be in community, but we are also animals who seek the path of least resistance. So we tend to flock to communities that like us and that we like them. Don't you think? We tend to flock to communities that, you know, we like people and they like us. Path of least resistance. And you know what? That lie is on shaky foundation as well because it's hard to keep up. It's hard to keep up to please people. It's very hard to please everyone. I'm sure all of us agree. Right? And that's very laborious. Here's a quote. Some people need everyone to like them. They feel pressure to please everyone, and they run around and try to make everyone happy. They feel the need to serve everyone, care for everyone, solve everyone's problems, and make everyone get along and live in harmony. For others, it isn't everyone. It's just important that a handful of the right people to love them. If we believe the lie that we need people's approval to feel good about ourselves, then we will feel anxiety when people are upset with us. We get defensive and get hurt by criticism, and worse, we disguise the hurt by thinking that if we say yes to many things asked of us, it will know the pain of the criticism from others. No, it doesn't work that way. When we build our foundation on people's approval, we will likely end up resentful, especially when they withhold their approval from us. And I think that after when I talk to some 
people in my network, a lot of the resentment is towards their parents. Because, I don't know about you, but uh, a lot of them were brought up in a culture where parents don't say, I love you, or say, good job, or say, you know what? You tried your best. It's more like, what? B, you should have gotten A, or A, you should have gotten A plus, or et cetera, et cetera, right? And a lot of that resentment is actually resenting our parents. And that's a lie. The lie that it's coming out from a lie that we believe that we need to please everyone. Good news. Here's the good news to free us from this. The good news is that the issue of your value is not dependent on whether people love you. Your value is symbolized already on the cross. In other words, God doesn't love you any more when everyone is on your side and pleased with you, and he doesn't love you any less when you are scorned, ridiculed, maligned, and mistreated." End quote. Meaning that it doesn't matter how many people like you, it doesn't matter how many people don't like you. In fact, it doesn't matter whether your spouse likes you, or with that day, or whether your spouse doesn't like you that day. God still values you highly, still sees you as worth it. God still loves you. Lastly, the lie of control. This lie convinces us that our value is dependent on whether we are in control. What happens when a high capacity person, someone who is capable, and an achiever suddenly is no longer able to do anything? Case in point, that's my mom. Somebody that has high capacity, that did everything, served at the church, led a small group, taught Bible study, uh, was a realtor, and you know, did everything, and also cared for her sons, and, you know, stuff like that. And then suddenly, bam, nothing. No longer able to do that. Physically can't do that anymore. Life stopped. Their identity, their whole purpose, their whole being collapses. So if, if we believe in the lie of control, that if I'm in control, then I won't get hurt. If I work well, plan well, control what I can control and produce good results, I'll feel good. And if I feel good, other people feel good. And guess what? I'm protected from hurt. I will not be hurt. That is a lie. How many of us believe in that lie? That if I'm in control, then I won't get hurt. Because let's face it, we're never in control. Our lives are really dependent on God. And even now, it's very, very tempting to attach my identity on Good Friday, like on Good Friday community dinners. Even now, like, uh, I could attach myself with the community day. Even now, I could attach my identity with uh, the Christmas uh, uh, event. Even now, I could attach my identity with the numbers here. Control. Yet, that is, that is not my identity. Being able to control, being able to have that control does not mean, uh, does not mean that I have higher value. And being out of control does not mean I have lower value. That's not my identity. The truth is, my identity is found on the cross. So, how do I see the upcoming community day? Does it matter if it rains and it gets canceled? Does it matter if the, there was nobody showing up? Does it matter if everything goes south and sideways and even crisscross and just backwards and just go in chaos? No. I know it's very hard to say that, but no. 
because my value is not hinged on the success of those things. My value is not hinged on the, the ability to control the results of those things. God is in control. Folks, I don't know about you, but there are a lot of times I feel that I need to control the end results because that defines my identity. Well, that's a lie. My identity is not found in the results of what I do. My identity is already found on the cross. And he said, I was worth dying for. To conclude this session, this chapter, here's a quote to conclude. The issue of your value and identity is settled at the cross. On the cross, the Father said to you and to me, you are infinite worth to me. I declare you to be worthy of my son's blood. If Jesus died for us, then what can diminish our worth? Not rejection, not enemies, not hatred, not criticism, not abandonment, not abuse. Hey, not even a spouse who leaves you or no longer loves you. Not bad performances, not failures, not circumstances out of your control or, be, or people beyond your reach. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Again, the issue of your value and identity is actually settled at the cross. You were worth it. You were worth dying for.